The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined by my co-host, the Libra icon, Dwayne. What's going on, Dwayne? Not much. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Let's get it. All right. We're going to jump right into it, man. They play the biggest football game in the history of Western civilization, at least for this year anyway. The Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Rams took place on Sunday evening. And the Patriots defense holds the Rams high-powered offense to three points as they win their sixth Super Bowl, 13-3. Julian Edelman was named the Super Bowl MVP. He had 10 catches for 140 yards. The Rams only generated 260 yards of total offense. So Dwayne, the dynasty continues after a hiccup in last year's Super Bowl where they allowed the Eagles to the chagrin of everybody in the NFC East to win their very first Lombardi trophy. The Patriots rebound, hold the Rams down, and um, the defense won't get the glory it should, but they won this football game for Tom Brady, Julian Elman, and everybody on offense. So just your overall thoughts of the game, and then we'll get in a little bit deeper. I got some questions I want to ask. Well, I mean, this a lot of people were probably bored by this whole lack of offense and lack of points. But this is where we always say defense wins championships, and this was the epitome of – defense winning championships uh, as high octane as the Rams offense has been for all of the season all of this past season this was just a great game you got to give your hat off to that Patriots defense hats off to Belichick and Brady winning for the sixth time hats off to Brian Flores who Called a great defensive game as he goes on to Miami become the Dolphins head coach. So this was definitely a lot of a lot of uh, it was very close. I mean, you, the Rams kind of started figuring things out until that untimely interception by Jared Goff, and that was at the, at the time that they needed it. You could kind of also look at. Uh, Brandon Cooks, um, I think he dropped the ball prior to that, and it was just not a good, not a good look in terms of the the uh, Rams offense. People are gonna probably start calling Sean McVay a fraud. I saw that on Twitter yesterday. I thought that's kind of unfair. I mean, just because you know, yes, it's the biggest game of. It's the biggest game of your career and the biggest game of your life. But to say, you know, start calling them fraudulent because 
the Rams didn't do what they're supposed to do. That's just ridiculous to me. As a Redskins fan, I should have seen this coming. I should have seen it coming because I thought it was maybe a Kirk Cousins not having enough talent issue. But McVay and the scheme, I don't know if it's just the the Shanahan's kind of had the same problem too. It doesn't look the same when it plays up against a really well-coached, stout 3-4 defense. And I don't know why, through all of my thoughts about what was going to happen in this game, that that didn't reoccur to me that the running part of what they try to do doesn't work if you play up against a really good, well-coached, well-schemed up 3-4 defense. And that's exactly what happened to the Rams yesterday. If you're a Redskins fan, this looked like so many games in like 2016 where it seemed like we played all these teams, really good teams with a 3-4 defense. And if you give McVay something he's not expecting, like not only did they play a six-man line, like a like a 5-1 type line, they also played a lot of zone and they had played a lot of man up until then. And th- those are the little type of things that can get McVay off of his off of his uh, off of his game. And it's just so reminiscent of so many games that the Redskins played against really top notch three, four defenses. It's like, where's the offense? And th- it, it happens to the Rams. So it's definitely a scheme type of thing because the way that the that they play the game, even though they have these air raid quarterbacks, they're not really trying to just drop them back, drop them back, drop them back, drop them back. They're trying to really run the ball. And then when you finally get enough of the run established, then we hit you with these big plays over the top and golf has really good deep ball accuracy. But I should have seen this coming. I really should have seen this coming. Is it a fraudulent thing or is it a I don't think it's a I don't think it's a fraudulent thing. I think it's a scheme thing. I think it's just it's a thing where the running game is based on them taking your guys and moving them sideways. Everybody has to take the same step and everybody grabs their puts their hand on their guy and we're all moving to the side. And then the running back has to get to a point where all of a sudden he sees a crease and he takes one cut back. And, and the theory is, like on that big run that Gurley had, the one play that he actually made in the game where he got like that 13-yard run, got everybody going one way. And then all of a sudden when he sees the hole open up, then he cuts back and goes the other way. That's what the zone scheme is based on. But if you get a defense that just comes straight, that doesn't let you – move them to the side, but they go straight through the gaps. You got nowhere to run. And that's what the, that's what the uh, Patriots were really doing. They were coming straight down and not getting engaged and going to the side. And, and, and it really disrupted the running game. And then once you disrupt the running game, you take away all the play action and the rollouts and all that cool stuff they like to do. It's just Belichick doing things, but my most impressive things to me for the Patriots will be 
the offense because they've been at the forefront of the college stuff. They were doing the Chip Kelly stuff, going five wide, no huddle, uh, keeping Gronk and Hernandez on the field and doing whatever they wanted to do. They could go two tight ends. They could go slot. You know, they could do whatever they wanted to do. Just kept the same personnel on the field, and they just run plays, run plays, run plays, run plays. Remember that version of the Patriots. Then now that everybody else is kind of catching up and trying to do that, now Bill Belichick took two offenses and melded it together. He took the Bill Walsh traditional West Coast passing game, which throws to a lot of running backs, a lot of tight ends, not really deep shots, but deep shots once you get like the 35-yard line, you know, 30-yard line. And then he took the Joe Gibbs power running game and put that together to make this offense. And and is phenomenal. The way that they were running the football, even against the Rams who, you know, held their own it didn't seem like that they they were gashing them, gashing them, but they ended up with like over 130 yards as a team rushing. Right. Brady did not play well. You know, his accuracy it was, for, was off. If it wasn't for Edelman, his game would have been horrible. Right. His accuracy was off. Hogan was a no-show. James White didn't seem to really be a big part of the passing game. Maybe the Rams had, you know, something figured out on him. So, yeah, Edelman was the one guy who was doing work. And then, um, you know, Brady just caught him in that in that one defense where they had their base defense on the field, and they caught him in that situation where they started in the spread and caught him off guard. They thought they were going to load up in their heavy offense, and they didn't. And then they got him spread out, and they ran the same play three times in a row. And the last one ended up with the big play to Gronk. Got him down to the one. Sony Michelle runs the ball in. And then there's your, you know, there's your difference right there, so. But it's just funny that a season dominated by offense culminated into a defensive struggle at the Super Bowl because, you know, even though the Patriots were the winning team, we we cannot, you know, discredit or sell short what the Rams did on defense. They they really slowed the Patriots down. I mean, this this game could have been out of hand because of the lack of offense and the punting. I think the uh I think they punted seven straight drives. I think the Rams did. Eight. Eight. Yeah, so, you know, this this could have been one of those games where if the defense of the Rams wasn't, uh, you know, holding up their end, that this could have been out of hand and early. So, got to give a big, uh, you know, tip of the cap to Wade Phillips and what he was doing over there. He had Tom Brady confused. He made a bunch of bad throws in the coverage that you normally don't see him make. So, you know, give a big shout out to Wade Phillips, but they just didn't have enough offense, and uh, that's something that McVay's got to—he's got to learn. Uh, you know, he's got to learn from this, and maybe be a little bit more multiple in his running game, to where he can, if they do come up against a defense like that, he can maybe turn it into more of a a push him back type offensive running game instead of a move him to the side type of running game. But yeah, that was that was really the. Yeah, definitely got to go north-south versus east-west. Right. So, um, a couple of questions I have as we dig a little bit deeper. Edelman now, with his 10 catches, has moved into second place all-time in a postseason on the all-time catch list behind Jerry Rice. Um, I don't know if he's going to be playing with Tom Brady long enough to catch Jerry Rice, but 
Um, you know, a lot of people since the championship game have been kind of tossing around, you know, Hall of Fame type credentials for Edelman. What are your thoughts, Dwayne? Do you think Edelman is a Hall of Famer? Only, only. I would have to say this. We would have to see. I guess it's kind of a take about the system. See how he does. I mean, we could. If Danny Amendola was there, we would be saying that about him. If Wes Welker was there, we'd be saying that about him. So, and it's kind of a system thing, and it's kind of like the anything that go anything that's outside of the scheme that the Patriots run or the system that the Patriots have established doesn't work in other areas. I mean, whether it's players or coaches or executives, I mean, what happens? They end up either coming back to New England or we never hear from them again. So Hall of Fame, I mean, if you want to go based on numbers, then you would have to consider it, but it, it's kind of one of those things. Do you do you go out of the system, or or even then? Then would you say Jerry Rice was a product of Bill Walsh's system? And you know, how did he fare without that kind of environment? I mean, he was still. I mean, he was great in Oakland, but you know, I try to forget the Seattle Seahawks Jerry Rice, but they're. Neither here or there, but Hall of Fame a stretch. I would have to see, like you said, you know, it's not that much longer. He may not be in the New England system. We'll just have to see. I would equate his candidacy to kind of like Lynn Swan. Lynn Swan really, if you look at his stats, he has to you know take into consideration the the era that he was playing in, more of a run heavy era and the passes were far deeper down the field you know in that time frame you know they were really going for home runs when they did throw the ball but if you think about Lynn Swan the only thing you really know about him is Super Bowl is 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 postseason stuff you know what I'm saying his his catches in the Super Bowl his stats from the Super Bowl you can't name a season from Lynn Swan but he's a Hall of Famer so I think that that would maybe be the kind of benchmark that Julian Edelman could make his case on. Hey, you know, my season stats aren't this great. But if you look at me in the postseason, you know, I'm one of the best guys to to do this Yeah, in the postseason. So, I mean, and we all say stars and legacies and legends are made in the postseason. So that may be uh, he may be the perfect case for that at some point. My next question I'd like to ask is, what is up with Todd Gurley? Another game where his usage rate was, you know, far lower than people would expect it to be. I think in the NFC Championship game, he had five total touches. I think in this game, he was up to like 11 uh, with all reports saying that he was healthy that he was good, he wasn't feeling uh, any ill effects of the knee that had been, you know, aggravating him for the last month or so. So in your estimation, Dwayne, was there something, is there something more to this Gurley and McVay type thing that maybe we haven't heard in your estimation, or did you just think that 
He felt that C.J. Anderson was fresher and could take more of the load. I mean, they didn't run it that much, but C.J. Anderson did get a bulk of the, the work. Uh, that's a good question. I Maybe there's something going on behind the scenes. I mean, I heard reports of his knee happening. There's something wrong with his knee. Um, I'm not sure. I would... We would have to kind of see if there's any reports that come out that kind of depict the dynamic or relationship between between the two, if there's anything going on between the two. We would have to kind of just wait and see how that goes. But I would say that I would say we would probably need to figure out what is going on with Todd Gurley. I sure could have used that one. That this Todd Gurley when fantasy football is going on against a few of my opponents, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, this was something that. You know, everybody, we thought Todd Gurley was going to be ready to go. We, you know, there was a little blip of what Todd Gurley was uh, capable of doing, but we only saw that for what, like one play? Yeah. And, and now, and now it was like Gurley kind of, you know, running backs age quickly. It was like he aged in a matter of three or four weeks because he wasn't all that great in the NFC title game either. So, uh, the only thing we can, the only thing I can say from this point in regards to Todd Gurley is that if he is injured, I hope he gets that corrected in the offseason so he can come back and be that dominant self. Or maybe this is just the playoff Todd Gurley. Maybe this is just, you know, who he is which I hate to say, but that's a possibility that's true. Yeah, I'd be very curious to see how um, he bounces back in the preseason and, and what comes out a little bit later in the offseason. Maybe there'll be a story or, or something regarding, you know, the way that he was used uh, in these last two uh, most important games of the Rams season. So before we move away from the NFL, uh, this weekend also brings the NFL honors and the Hall of Fame announcements. So Patrick Mahomes, he wins the league MVP and offensive play of the year. Don't think that was any surprise there. Aaron Donald, he wins defensive play of the year for the second year in a row. Saquon Barkley, he edged out Baker Mayfield for the offensive play, uh, rookie of the year. And Darius Leonard of the Colts edged out Derwin James and was named the defensive rookie of the year. Matt Nagy of the Chicago Bears was named Coach of the Year. And Told you, Jay. <laughs> and our new Hall of Famers are Tony Gonzalez, Chant Bailey, Ty Law, Ed Reed, and Kevin Mawai, offensive lineman from the New York Jets. So uh, anything you want to comment on as far as the awards or the next class of the Hall of Fame goes, Dwayne? I was hoping the Baker effect would have landed in the rookie of the year, but it was well-deserved from Saquon Barkley. Uh, Derwin James was a big difference maker in Indy for the Colts. 
Patrick Mahomes, year two, you're in year two. I mean, year one essentially, because as a starter, he gets MVP, which shows just um, it was worth that pick. Remember how we many people questioned that pick when the Chiefs drafted him, but it looks like they knew what they were doing. And then the Hall of Fame class is probably the most deserving Hall of Fame class I've seen in a long time. I have no arguments, no qualms, no no dissension on any of the guys who got in. Congratulations to all of them. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a uh, – I think Kevin Mawai may have a lot of people kind of shaking their head and maybe Ty Law maybe – you know, a little bit of a, you know, eh, uh, yeah. And then you start thinking about it and you start looking at the numbers like, yeah, okay. But Gonzalez, Champ Bailey, Ed Reed, for sure. Um, one of maybe the best pass catching tight end to ever play. Uh, one of the truly locked down corners in Champ Bailey. And then maybe the greatest safety of all time in Ed Reed. So, And the greatest tight end of all time. Pass catching tight end. I don't know how good he was at blocking, but he sure could catch though. I mean, that's what I was referring <laughs> to. Uh, you know, you know, we in the age where tight ends receive now. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, congratulations to those guys, and I look forward to their Hall of Fame speeches uh, later this summer. This is Know the Score. I'm your host Don Delarente. I'm joined by my host Dwayne, the Libra Icon. And you can find Know the Score on the CSPN.us on the web, also on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. Going to move over to the NBA, Dwayne. Got a lot of people asking for a lot of things in the NBA. Most notably, Anthony Davis. He requested a trade. He told the Pelicans he's not resigning in the offseason. And the Lakers are his preferred destination. Of course. But this gets tricky because as we all know, the Lakers will have to do a lot to get Anthony Davis there, which means that they would have to take these young players that they've been trying to mold and groove, groom and shape for LeBron, get rid of most of them to bring this generational talent in and then hope that they can attract maybe one more guy and then have a bunch of, you know, spare parts as their, you know, the rest of their starting five and their bench players. But Boston, they have all the assets in the world, but they can't get into the situation until the summertime comes because for this to happen for them, they have to figure out something to do with Kyrie Irving. So... Everybody doesn't trust the Pelicans front office in uh, handling this situation. The Lakers seem to have tried to get over on them with their first offer. By all estimations, it was a low ball. Uh, Reports have come out that the Lakers have sent a second trade offer, which is a, you know, much more significant offer. So it looks like we're picking up steam on this Anthony Davis to the Lakers in a couple of days, uh, you know, type of situation. So how would this, in your estimation, shift the balance of power 
if the Lakers, even because, you know, I mean, they're going to have to give up Ball, Ingram, somebody. They're probably, probably going to keep everybody. Yeah, I was about to say, if I'm the Lakers, you can have everybody but LeBron and Kuzma. I'm going to need somebody who can shoot. I mean, if they get Davis, they get a shooter. <laughs> but, however, yeah, this is, I mean, it's, it's worth it in terms of, you know, getting a generational talent, but how are you going to pay for everybody? For one, and then for two, like, you know, like you alluded to, you're going to pretty much be unloading everybody if you get them. So, I mean, the balance of power really isn't going to shift that much. I mean, you still got to catch the Warriors. You still got the Rockets to worry about. And you got other teams that are still in the mix, you know. And as for Boston, I really, I mean, he's already kind of made it kind of clear he would only be a rental player in Boston, especially with his dad's <laughs> scathing scathing um, response to to um, Boston kind of being a per- preferred destination. I mean, of course, his whole, his whole thing was the whole Isaiah Thomas, how he handled it, but you kind of got to look at, you know, Isaiah Thomas or Kyrie Irving. Yes, Isaiah Thomas. And, you know, you already know how I wasn't really a fan of this trade initially anyway. And, you know, I wasn't the biggest fan of it. I kind of felt like, hey, this is something that um, Boston shouldn't do. And, you know, now they're kind of handicapped with that Rose rule. But we shall see. It's kind of one of those things where where we just got to wait and see what happens here in terms of the suitors that Anthony Davis has. And then the Knicks are a preferred destination. I wouldn't want to go to New York. I mean, the Knicks are still the Knicks. They still have James Dolan as an owner. And as long as James Dolan is the owner of that team, there's going to be some sense of dysfunction. So, you know, you might want to reconsider that. Speaking of the New York Knicks, Christoph Porzingis, (laughs) he met with the front office to request a trade. And hours later, he was dealt to Dallas for Dennis Smith Jr., DeAndre Jordan, and two future first-round draft picks. So, it's funny how sports work. The Knicks ended up still getting the guy that everybody thought they should have drafted last year. Yeah. And Dennis Smith Jr. Uh, They get DeAndre Jordan, who I guess will take the place of Enos Cantor when they can figure out where they're going to send him. If they don't buy him out. Yeah, or yeah, they're going to buy him out. I think they got Wesley Matthews as well. The Knicks did. I'm buy him out too. Yep. So, Dennis Smith and DeAndre Jordan are probably going to be the you know two major pieces that they end up keeping, as far as the Knicks go. But let's look at this from Dallas's perspective. 
You've got Dirk Nowitzki, his final year. Um, I don't know why the situation couldn't work between Dennis Smith and Luka, but for some reason, Dennis Smith has to go, so he's gone now. So how do you see this Luka-Christoph Porzingis thing working out, uh, presumably next year, because it's been reported that Porzingis, who suffered an ACL injury last year, will not play at all this year? to see. I think it'll probably work. I mean, you got Luca, who who's a, I mean, both are good inside-outside threats. Both are good. Uh, you get Porzingis up in the post. You get Luca kind of a mid-range to long-range and then Porzingis can step outside at times. And it's going to be a real interesting partnership between the two. I mean, they looked like they were kind of stoked to be on the same team when the Mavs were in New York anyway, so um, I think that this is going to be a good match for both sides, and it's a good it's a good deal for both, and then we'll just, uh, we'll just see what happens. What I wanted to say is that in in a Luca, who's who probably should have been an All Star, by the way, um, I think he's going to be a good passer, a good good passer for Brazingas, and and then with uh, Dirk's kind of mentorship, is going to be a lot to learn, and because you know even when Dirk retires, he's still going to be around the Mavericks organization, so that that's definitely something that those two will be able to lead on regardless. Things turned bright for Rodney Hood as he got traded from the Cavaliers to the Blazers. They've needed another uh, guy to maybe come off the bench, provide some bench scoring. They've also needed another shooter to kind of keep people off of Dame and uh, McCollum because those are the only two guys they really got that are like, you know, you've got to guard them. So Rodney Hood is another scorer, slasher. You know, he's got ability to make threes. So it gives him another perimeter player that that they expect to at least get some teams to, you know, maybe low 20 games out of off the bench or in the starting role. So how do you see Rodney Hood adding his firepower to the Blazers? Uh, Do you think that they can, you know, get them past the first round of the playoffs once we start in the Western Conference? Yeah, they'll get past the first round uh, now. That'll definitely be something we have to see if they go any further than the first round. But they needed firepower. Like I said, Damon CJ were the only two ones given that to Portland. So getting a guy like Rodney Hood, who's kind of wasting away in Cleveland anyway. And so this was a good move. This was a much needed move for him. And we'll, we just need to. Be patient, let the guys kind of gel, let them figure out how they're going to get along and and, uh, make the most of the situation. And our last subject is, you alluded to to it earlier, Um, I was going to ask you who you thought was the biggest all-star snub between Luka Dondich, DeMar DeRozan, or Rudy Gobert, but I think you may have tipped your hand when we were talking about the trade. Of Porzingis yeah. to to Dallas, you, you thought that Luca should have should have been on there, huh? 
I think Luca should have been on. And I also think that, I also think that DeMar DeRozan, but, you know, the West is so loaded with talent, it's kind of hard to pick just one player. So it's one of those things where, one of those things where somebody's going to get snubbed regardless. Uh, The biggest snub over the last few years has been Damian Lillard, but he finally got his all-star now, which has been well-deserving. So I just can't wait for, well, the all-star draft actually happened, didn't it? I thought they were going to televise it. Um, I know that yeah, I know the I know the teams I know the like the starters quote unquote starters were announced because they still vote yeah. the same way where you vote for five in the east and you vote for five in the west, but we're gonna have that same thing this year where they where they mix it up where they're gonna have two cat well LeBron and um, Giannis are gonna be the captains and they're gonna pick. Yeah, um, I think maybe it's on a different day. I I guess I thought it was gonna be that. Sunday, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I thought that they I saw a report where they said that they were going to um, televise it. Yeah, yeah, because it didn't get televised last year, and people kind of were like, why? Right, right. Um, Before we leave the NBA, um, let's just talk about some notable um, things that are going on. James Harden, still on that impressive scoring streak. Um, he scored 30 points or more, like 31 or 32 straight games. Uh, uh, even with the return of Chris Paul, he's still uh, lighting it up. Uh, Clay Thompson, uh, I think it was against the Bulls, was it? Where he hit his first 10 threes. Yeah. He was 10 for 11 in yeah. that game. And then uh, Steph Curry the other night in a loss against Philadelphia where Clay Thompson missed a game because he was sick. Uh, he made 10 threes in, in that particular game. So just some some pretty good efforts um, out here by the teams in the West. The the Nuggets beat the Rockets, uh, handled them, uh, beat them by double figures. So they're the best team in the West currently. And A lot of people aren't talking about them either, which is something where you probably need to start paying attention to Denver. Yeah. And they've got a couple of guys hurt right now. Murray wasn't playing in that game. Uh, He was on the bench, and they still handled the Rockets pretty soundly. So, you know, with them, it's all about can they handle, you know, the second half of the season after the All-Star game. And then once the games start to really, really matter, how they perform in the playoffs. You know, they don't have any experience on their team as far as playoff experience goes. And that's always, you know, a scary proposition for you know a team when they when they're going this is their first time in this situation where they don't really have anybody they can kind of lean on in a tight spot you know they may be the number one seed but you know if things don't quite go right or they don't handle the pressure right you know they get bounced out in the first round it's it's possible because the west is that strong yeah the west is that strong but there's been i mean they're well coached they got they got great talent. I mean, Murray injured aside. I mean, you got Jokic, who's a beast. And one thing about Jokic that many people don't know is how good of a passer he is. The man can really dish the rock. And, I, you know, I think they are a team. I mean, we'll have to see. Like you said, we'll keep an eye on the second half. And 
the postseason. I don't think they're going to be depend on. It will depend on who's the AC. It will say that if it's like I'll say maybe even someone like Sacramento, who's been playing very well this season, and and even I think the Lakers are still on the outside looking in right now. That would be a different story. So yeah, they're they're ninth right now. The Lakers are. Yeah, we'll just have to, we'll see what happens there. I mean, because the save the Lakers with or without AD get the AC, that would be a problem for the Nuggets definitely. Because playoff LeBron is different from regular season LeBron, obviously. And before we close out the NBA, and I let uh, turn it over to you for your final thought. Is there anybody uh, coming up on the trade deadline that you see moving? Do you think that the Hornets are going to make a move to try to get some more talent in there because they're on the outside looking in, barely at the playoffs? Do you think that this is the season where they move Kimba and they finally start a a rebuilding project, even though, you know, he says he doesn't want to go anywhere? I think think they're not going to move Kimba. I think they're really going to try to to find a way to get uh, Kimba a – a good deal, but the problem, the problem for the Hornets though is that contract from Nick Batum. Because Nick Batum has that contract, that max contract that Rich Hill. Don't know why he drank his Kool Aid, but that's neither here nor there. I'll save that for another day. But without, yeah, without because of that contract, the. Hornets are literally handicapped, and you know no team is going to take that because it's not an expiring deal. I think it's got two years left on it. So uh, because that contract isn't an expiring deal, and nobody's willing to you know kind of jump on that, jump on it, that's their biggest liability, and that's going to hinder them from making really any kind of deal, um, unless a team like say. If it was like the Brooklyn Nets who used, uh, I would say the old Brooklyn Nets, <laughs> not the current Brooklyn Nets. If it was like the Nets after the whole Celtics uh, debacle. They would probably take that contract, but I don't think they're going to take it right now. So I don't see the Hornets kind of making any kind of any kind of um, moves. It will out if they do somehow. If Miss Kupchak's able to get out of that contract, that platoon contract, then I would, I would, would I know he wouldn't get it like the year, but I would give it to him because anybody that can kind of get out of that contract, much like how the Hawks got out of that Joe Johnson contract. When you remember when Joe Joe Johnson got that magic deal and we kind of called him the ski mask all star for stealing all that money. Um, when the Hawks got out of that contract, you know, it's kind of similar to that. All right. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you so you can uh, give your shout outs and your final thought for this episode. All right. Shout outs to all the listeners. Thank you for listening as always. Shout out to my family. Thank you for all the support. Um, once again, thank you for having me on here, Don, as always. And my final thought is football is continuing. 
not the NFL, but the AAF, the Americans Alliance of Football, which really is kind of founded and ran by former NFL executives, players, and things of that sort, uh, kind of will be a, well, it will be a secondary league uh, for those who always are whining and complaining about how football is no not there. You have your alternative this time around. Um, and it's called the AAF, the Americans Alliance of Football. There will be eight teams in the season. Uh, I want to say one of them will be I want to say the one of them will be in Atlanta. You got Atlanta, Memphis, Birmingham, and Orlando in the Eastern Conference. And then in the Western Conference, you have Arizona, who will be playing at Sun Devil Stadium, uh, Salt Lake City, uh, San Antonio, and there's one more, San Diego. So San Diego has a football team again. Um, and then the uh, so they'll be playing. I want to say it's like eight weeks out the out the season. And then once they once they have um, once the season's over, two teams will take the um, championship. No, two teams will from each conference will make the playoffs, and then they. They will then go against one another for the championship. So it's something to kind of fall back on. Uh, might not be the NFL, but it does have a lot of NFL influence. They have a TV deal with CBS, and they have a they have a um, yeah CBS CBS Sports NFL Network. So. The NFL is essentially backing it by playing the games on the NFL Network, and and then Turner Sports. So Turner Sports is in this too. So they got a lot of backing, and and um, Steve Spurrier is going to be the head coach of the Orlando team. Uh, Mike Marks is coaching the San Diego team. So you'll see some recognizable names, uh, names you probably won't probably forgot about or haven't seen in a while you know it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting it's gonna, i'm at least gonna t- check out the first game and and then you know if it's interesting talent wise then we'll just go from there and see what happens all righty i'd like to give a shout out to Dwayne, the lever icon for joining me this week Give a shout out to everybody who listens and downloads and rates and reviews the podcast. Thank you very much. Give a shout out to all the podcasters here on the network. Also, please head over to CSPN.us. Please click on the click on the tab that says keep our podcast free at the top of the page. Help keep our podcast free by supporting our sponsors. Um, my final thought will be about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, the two biggest free agents of the Major League Baseball offseason are still unsigned, and we are about one week away from pitchers and catchers reporting spring training. So there seems to be a shift in the market here for baseball. Doesn't look like the owners are 
into giving out these big 10-year deals anymore. We thought that Bryce Harper two years ago may be breaking the bank with a 10-year, $400 million contract, but uh, definitely not getting anywhere near those numbers in the negotiations. Uh, he's uh, talked to the Phillies. He's talked to the Padres, the White Sox. Um, they've also talked to Manny Machado as well. So we're coming down here to you know the ninth hour, and these guys still don't have a team. So it's very interesting what's going on right now in baseball. They're kind of changing their economics. It looks like the owners have kind of smartened up and realized that, you know, it's not smart to give a 25-year-old guy a 10-year contract because you'll never get your full investment out of those last three to five years. So um, it'll be interesting to see where Machado and Bryce Harper end up and how much they sign for because it's going to be significantly lower than what we expected uh, last last year at this point when we were looking forward to this year as far as they're projecting uh, the deals that they could get and what would be available in the free agent market for both of these players. So, For the Libra icon, Dwayne, I'm Don DeLorente, and now you have the score.